Hi, and welcome to Veg Out, Toronto's vegetarian podcast. We come to you from the offices of the TVA, the Toronto Vegetarian Association. We are heard on CJRU 1280 AM, The Scope, Ryerson's Campus, and Community Station. My name is Sweta, and I'm joined by Steve. We are both volunteers with the TVA, and our mission is to inspire people to choose a healthier, greener, and more compassionate lifestyle through plant-based eating. On today's show, we have Camille Labchuk. She's a Toronto-based animal rights lawyer and executive director of Animal Justice, Canada's only animal law advocacy organization. Under her leadership, Animal Justice fights legal cases in courtrooms across the country, works to promote and pass groundbreaking new animal protection legislation, and ensures laws already on the book are being enforced. Camille has intervened in precedent-setting cases to protect and enhance animals' legal interests at all levels of court, including the Supreme Court of Canada. She regularly testifies before legislative committees and was instrumental in passing precedent-setting national ban on whale and dolphin captivity last year. She has filed false advertising complaints against companies making misleading humane claims, documented Canada's commercial seal slaughter, and exposed hidden suffering behind the closed doors of farms and zoos through undercover investigations. Camille also has strong interest in defending and protecting the rights of animal advocates, including the rights of people to follow a vegan diet. Camille is a frequent lecturer on animal law, a regular contributor to national publications like the Globe and Mail and Lawyers Daily, and her work has been featured in countless media stories. And on that list of accomplishments, we can also mention that you're a Kalabi winner. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the Kalabi Awards are the Canadian Legal Blogging Awards, and it started out just giving awards to legal blogs. But over time, they've evolved to recognize the other ways that people explain the law in sort of layperson terms. So um, through Animal Justice, my colleague Peter Sankoff and I have a podcast called Paw and Order, which focuses on animal law, mostly in Canada, but a bit of international flavor. And we talk every two weeks about issues going on, what's in the news, trials, animal activism. And we were lucky this year to be honored with one of the best podcasts awards from the Clobbies. Yes, and it's it's a very good podcast. I would highly recommend that after listening to this one, of course, yes. you go and you listen to that one as well. Um, so the way that we always start these interviews is we ask about uh, your um, your vegan journey, sort of how you got to that point, um, what led you there. Sure. Well, you know, when I was growing up, I grew up in PEI, way out on the East Coast, and I always remember caring about animals. I had cats, I had hamsters, we had rabbits and ducks at one point, but I'd never made the food connection. Uh, until I was about 11 or 12, my mom and I were watching TV one night, and a documentary came on about, I can't even recall the details, but it was something to do with animals being mistreated horrifically. I think it may have been about bears being used for bile in China. It wasn't even food animals, but for whatever reason, it just sparked something in me, and I told my mom that night, that's it, we're not eating meat anymore, we're done. And she'd been vegetarian in her past, so she was like, yeah, sure, sounds good. <laughs> so we went vegetarian. Um, that lasted through most of high school, although there was a year when I went back to eating meat. I don't remember why, but, you know, teenagers being focused on friends and socializing and not the issues, I guess. Uh, but when I was in my 20s, I, so I, I did an undergraduate degree. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I ended up working in politics for Green Party leader Elizabeth May. And she's you, a fantastic woman. You also ran for parliament at one point. I did, yeah. Just writing. 
Uh, yeah, that was a yeah. little bit later. But I, oh, okay. I ran first in okay, Moncton. Sorry for jumping ahead. Yeah. No, no, no problem. Oh, you ran in Moncton before that? Yeah, Moncton okay. in 2006. Moncton, okay. how did you get out there? Were you living <laughs> no, in well, there? If you're, if you're from PEI, it? that's logical. Exactly. Okay, yes, it's not, yes. It's not no, that, that makes far. sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I was I was attending Man Allison University, and I would, oh, had yeah. just graduated, so oh. I was working there. Oh. Okay. So I was vegetarian at that time, but, yeah. you know, um, so I ran for Parliament. Then I started working on Elizabeth May's leadership campaign. Um, she won the leadership, and that was great. So I worked with her in Ottawa as her press secretary. And I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I only had an undergrad degree. You often need more um, credentials to do most interesting things. So I knew I'd go back to school at some point. But I didn't know what for. And Elizabeth May sort of inspired me as um, you know, with her legal training and her law background. I started to see that there was something there. But more importantly to the story of how I went vegan is that uh, during that period in my life, I got invited to go back to the commercial steel hunt in PEI with uh, Humane Society International and Humane Society of the United States. So these were folks who worked full-time on animal advocacy issues. I had no idea that such a career path existed. And I'd also never been around a bunch of vegans before in my life. I'd only met one or two others. And you were vegetarian at this point? I was vegetarian, okay. and for years I'd wanted to go vegan. I just okay. sort of knew I would mm -hmm. at some point, but I needed a little kick in the pants. So I was around a bunch of other vegans, and I was like, oh, this is fine, I can totally do this. So that was it. Okay. Okay, I don't, I don't think I've heard that story where someone is vegetarian, then they stop, then they go back, and then they become vegan. So that's, I, I really enjoy that story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it sort of reminds me of the challenges that a lot of people face in, in their vegan journeys. Is We hear about these high rates of vegan or vegetarian recidivism where people go back to eating meat. And for me, in both cases, both like that period in my life where I ate meat again in high school, I think it was because of social factors, because my friends were. I think and it then, often is, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. so. And then later on, when I went vegan, again, it was a social thing. I met other vegans, and it became well, easier. That's, that's often the case, too. That, 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 that's part of why I like to uh, talk to people who have been vegan for a short time or, or who are transitioning from vegetarian to vegan and, and because you can encourage them to go that way. Yeah, yeah, and the social support and the community, then that's one of the things that the TVA does really well is provide that community. I yeah. think it's so important. Yeah. yeah, I think that's important. And then you're also a Lisa Grail Compassion Award winner. Okay, so that's it's a little dated at this point, but it's good to cover anyways. It's a great accomplishment. And then uh, you have a connection there. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was, it was a real honor to win the Lisa Girl Compassion Award. I know Lisa personally, and I know her husband, James Silver, and her brother, Gary Grill, much better. And Gary and James were responsible for setting up the award in Lisa's name to honor her compassion and all the advocacy that she does for animals. Uh, so out of law school, my first job in the field was working for James as a criminal defense lawyer. Oh. Yeah. Oh. I, I feel like I've been hearing your, your name a lot because of the, the bill that uh, just came out, the, um, the Bill 156, the Animal Protection uh, Zones Bill. Do you want to talk at all about that? Uh, often called the ag gag or agricultural uh, gag kind of laws. Do you want to talk about what's going on in Ontario with that? Yeah, sure. So it's a really important topic right now for anyone who cares about animals or uh, being able to access vegan food or or this movement in general. Um, so egg gag laws, agricultural gag, is, is kind of where the origin of the term came from. It was coined by Mark Bittman, a, a New York uh, Times, sorry, yeah, New York Times yeah. writer. 
and he was writing about this proliferation in the states of, of these laws that make it an offense in various ways. The details are always different, but the thing that they have in common is they make it an offense to expose animal cruelty on farms. And they might do this by saying you can't record or film on farms, uh, you can't misrepresent yourself on a job application, so you, you, you couldn't get a job on a farm if you were a vegan or someone who worked for an animal rights organization. Um, sometimes they make it possible for the employers to sue those people who might expose animal cruelty but for very high amounts of money that would make it very, very costly and dangerous to do that work. And unfortunately, these laws are now making their way north of the border. And it's tragic because in the states, uh, they started, it's been decades and states have passed things like this, but there was a real proliferation in the last decade or so. But they never reached their way up to Canada, so we kind of thought that we were safe. But what we've seen in the last few years is a massive increase in activism in Canada and awareness amongst the public of what happens on farms. So there have been tons of undercover investigations now, dozens in Canada, exposing the realities of egg farms, chicken farms, turkeys, um, dairy farms, all, all sorts of them have been hit with undercover investigations. And the agriculture industry we know doesn't like that. And the other thing that's happened is, is things like Anita Kreins' pig trial, where she gave water yeah. to yeah. suffering pigs who were on their way to slaughter. And she was charged with criminal mischief. Those charges obviously didn't stick. She was acquitted after a lengthy trial and a yep. lot of publicity. Yep. And that angered the farming industry too. So they've been pushing for some kind of crackdown for a long time. So what we're now seeing, uh, Alberta was first. Alberta passed a law that makes it an offense to uh, gain access to a facility through false pretenses. So that pretty much precludes anyone from doing an undercover expose by getting a job on a farm. And it probably targets whistleblowers as well who might already work there and want to expose illegal cruelty that they see. And unfortunately, that bill passed in Alberta in only 10 days with very little discussion or debate and almost no scrutiny. Uh, Ontario followed suit right after that, that bill so passed. Was that the present government or was that the previous government? When, who was this is the Jason Kenney government in Alberta. Yes, okay, okay, that, that's quite understandable. Yeah, yeah unfortunately, guess, they've just... done everything they can to target environmentalists yeah. and now animal rights activists, so it's yeah. disturbing. Um, and Doug Ford's government is following suit, so we know yeah. the farmers have been lobbying very, very hard here for this yeah. type of legislation. And the... Um, the bill here would do the same thing. It would make it an offense to get access to a facility through false pretenses. It also massively jacks up fines for trespass onto farms. And just farms or slaughterhouses or other places where animals are being used. Not hospitals, not schools, not other sensitive places. They're really only trying to protect farms here. Mm -hmm. So that's a problem. And the other disturbing thing, especially given that Toronto is the home of the SAVE movement and the birthplace of the SAVE movement, is that it targets those activists too. So the brave folks who go and bear witness outside slaughterhouses, greet the animals in their final minutes before they're sent into the gas chamber or the guillotine. Yeah. Uh, so it makes an offense to stop trucks full of animals on their way to slaughter. It makes an offense to interact with animals on those trucks, even if they're on public property. And that could be punishable by huge fines. So we're very concerned about this, and we fear it's also unconstitutional. I, I'm very confused about that idea of it's on public property and it's still illegal. Um, I don't, I don't understand how that's possible to make that illegal. Like, it's well, that it's possible in that uh, sque squeegee laws and things like that are public property things. Oh, I, I you guess. Know, like but it, but yeah, uh, yeah. so it's possible to make it illegal. But I, I, I think there's still good grounds to fight it. 
I think so too. Yeah. I, you know, I think what really resonates with the public when they hear about this is yeah. that it's just completely unfair. Yeah. Um, the government, I think, has been surprised because the way they're communicating about this dangerous bill is in terms of trespass, so stopping yeah. trespass, and biosecurity. Yeah. But the yeah. public, when it's explained to them what this does, they understand that it's just about one thing and one thing only, which is concealing hitting animal cruelty, yeah. and people don't want to stand for that. Yeah. And the fines are kind of, um, you mentioned this, are kind of outrageous. So it's 15000 for the first offense, and then 25000 for, uh, I think that's the max. But then um, you've also said that that max can be raised, and that's something that also confuses me just as a layperson. I don't understand what the point of the max is, if it can be raised. <laughs> that's a really great question. This is not something that we typically see in legislation. It's obvious that the farming industry has a lot of power and a lot of sway with this government and it's getting mm -hmm. special concessions. You know, the other thing it does, which is disturbing, is it gives farmers pretty broad police powers to arrest activists and probably to rough them up too while they're is being there arrested. Is any way politically of getting the different types of farms in, a different, or in different organizations that have different criteria around things like this? Like wheat farmers aren't necessarily on board with this. But, but they're lumped together as part of the agriculture. Yeah, no, it's the, interesting. The, you don't see the animal agriculture farmers. is a smaller sector by itself. And, and, and I think we want to separate them so that they actually only have the clone of a smaller sector. No, that's a great that, point, that, Steve. That might help. Yeah. I mean, you don't see bean farmers lining up or lentil yeah. farmers trying to hide what they're doing. And yeah. The reason for that is because uh, they're not Fortunately, a lot of them are mixed farmers to some degree, but the, but their organization is mostly around the lentils or beans that they're, they're things like that that they're growing. Yeah, well, what so, I hope to see is, is the industries evolve, yeah, yeah. is we're seeing the growth of the plant sector, especially now in Canada. Canadian uh, Canada's a lentil powerhouse. We're a yeah. chickpea powerhouse. We're yeah. a grain powerhouse. Yeah. We grow yeah. all of these great products that can be transformed into amazing plant-based proteins like Beyond Meat. So I do hope to see those farmers, yeah. you know, like, carved out a little bit from the animal folks. I came to the, that comes to mind easily for me because... Uh, I'm aware that Edmonton and Calgary are very different for uh, vegan food. Mm -hmm. And Edmonton is in wheat growing country, Calgary is in ranching country. And Edmonton's a mecca for vegan food right now, isn't but Calgary's it? kind isn't of a it? desert. Yeah. yeah, but but the reason is because it, it's in grain growing country. They don't have the issues with the, with the cattle farmers the same way. That's an interesting point. I'd never thought because, of that. Because as an ranching country is uh, the southwest part of Alberta, mm. not the entire province. So. Uh, Oh, interesting point. Uh, so in, in fighting it politically, not legally, uh, that, that would it would be helped to separate those two and have them yeah. Show them that they're not one and the same. Not one and the same. Yeah. No, and I mean, there is incredible support. I had a very interesting conversation with Brad Wall, who's the former premier of Saskatchewan. Yeah. And uh, he said that his daughter is veg, vegan actually, I think. And yeah. he was extremely supportive of the plant-based protein industries. So yeah. there's something there that politicians, I think, do find appealing and attractive. Because it's pro-industry, it's business-friendly, yeah. and everyone stands And again, to Saskatchewan, again, is more grain and lentil growing than uh, it's not beef country. No. So so you've got that difference there, yeah. Yeah, I think there's, yeah. Yeah, it's a good thing. So, uh, so maybe we need to focus on that and trying to get the politics uh, closer to our side. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm trying to get more subsidies as well for those industries. I mean, the, the meat and dairy and egg, egg industries uh, get billions of dollars of yeah. public funding every year yeah. to produce the products that they sell. Yeah. And uh, that comp that pales in comparison to any funding given to vegetable farmers or fruit farmers or grain farmers. Yeah.
You had mentioned that these laws um, have existed in the states for a while, so it seems like since the 1990s um, they've been in places like Kansas and North Dakota, so uh, there is a shift you mentioned in the way that animal activists are doing things here and that's why you know the laws are changing here, but it seems odd to me that, that they only started up you know, creating these laws now, you know? Um, and that seems to be the case kind of around the world. I think in France and um, in Australia as well, they're, they're creating these laws. Do you think there's a shift in the way the animal activists are behaving around the world? Or do you think that the, the companies, the agriculture companies are just thinking, let's get ahead of this, let's put these laws out there before it becomes too much of a problem? Well, I think it's both. I think this generally reflects the rise of animal activism and the fact that more people are talking about animal cruelty on farms. The farming industry for decades has relied on absolute secrecy to do what it wants to animals for profit reasons without any oversight. So for a very long time uh, in Canada, the situation always has been that there are no laws protecting animals on farms. There's no regulations about animal welfare. And because there's no regulations, there is no public oversight. There's no inspectors that go out there and do a report and examine what happens on a turkey farm or a chicken farm or a cow farm. Uh, there's just nobody watching from the government. So as a result of that, I feel like the situation in Canada is has led people to feel inspired to take matters into their own hands, to go onto these farms and to expose what they see. And the farming industry predictably doesn't like that because their business model depends on keeping the truth from the public. Yeah. Um, do you think, so when I, whenever I think of Canada and I think of um, places where bad things happen to animals, I think of Quebec. I think it's just because of their puppy mills and stuff. I don't know if that's just in my head because I know a lot of people that do that kind of activism there. But uh, when do you think Quebec's time is going to come? Or do you see, do you hear anything about, yes, Quebec is going to be getting these laws soon? Um, is that... Is there chatter about that? Well, it's, it's hard to say for sure, but we know that these laws tend to follow a high-profile incident where animal cruelty has been exposed. Okay. So in Alberta, this happened after an occupation of a turkey farm, a liberation lockdown on a turkey farm where activists exposed what was happening. In Ontario, there have been many, many incidents stemming from you know the SAFE movement, the pig trial, many um, occupations of, uh, you know, there was an occupation of the chicken slaughterhouse that's actually in the city of Toronto, just late August of last year. Um, in BC as well, there was a, a lockdown on the pig farm, and there's, a, there's a, a minor version, not quite as worrying as Ontario or Alberta, but there's one in BC. So Quebec is a possibility because recently at the um, end of 2019, there was a, a lockdown on the farm, an occupation on the pig farm in Quebec, just a horrific, horrific um, facility. The, the footage that was live streamed by the animal advocates who were inside there exposing to the world what was happening was just disgusting. There's pigs living in uh, literal feces, just mm -hmm. absolutely caked in mud and filth and feces, and it was, it was horrifying to see. So uh, it's possible that the agriculture industry in Quebec is now lobbying for these laws, and because of this thread, this is not something that's unique to one province, this is something that could very well sweep across the country. I think it's very important for compassionate people who care enough to care how animals in our food system are treated to get out ahead of this and contact legislators even before this kind of thing might be proposed to make sure that they know that we won't stand for it. Yeah, and you on your website also have uh, like a form that we can fill out and, and send to our MP as well, right? That's right. So yeah, if you visit animaljustice.ca, the, the, one of the main uh, issues on the front page is uh, taking action on, on, on Ontario egg gag laws. 
So you mm -hmm. can fill out that form letter. It will go directly to your member of provincial parliament, and then we'll send you a follow-up email with how you can phone them and contact them further and make sure that they hear your voice. Yeah. And so what's, um, what are your kind of plans for this and how to attack these laws? Well, we're just doing everything we can right now to build public support against these laws and show legislators why they're not the right thing to do. Now, mm -hmm. that may not be enough. Uh, the provincial government right now is beholden to the farming industry. The farming industry has a ton of power, so much more power than the animal protection community. So one thing we do want to do is make uh, partnerships with other organizations. So some unions have expressed concern about this. Uh, a number of law professors have come forward and say and said that they believe that AKA legislation is unconstitutional, it restricts people's freedom of speech, mm -hmm. and potentially food safety advocacy organizations might be partners too. In the U.S., there have been a number of successful legal challenges to AKA laws, and they've been struck down now in multiple states. And those legal challenges tend to be headed not just by animal rights organizations, but also mm -hmm. unions and food safety and journalists as well. Um, this legislation could have a serious impact on journalism. So there's a lot of stakeholders who I think care enough to try to block it, and we hope that will happen. Yeah. So when I, when I hear about these things like, oh, we're becoming more like the states, you know, when these laws are kind of coming all across the border... I get scared that other laws are going to come across the border as well. So there's like the, you know, like the, with the Shack uh, 7 and there was the trial and they got um, convicted under the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. And this was, again, in the States. Um, do you or do you have any concerns like that, that those kind of laws are going to start coming over here across the border? Well, I've never heard any whispering of that. Um, that legislation in the States is, is pretty unique as far as, as countries go. Um, I think such a statute here would probably be unconstitutional, so at least there's that. Um, but, you know, the gag laws are something I also never thought would creep north of the border, so it's really hard to say. I think what we're seeing right now, and I go back to one of my all-time favorite quotes about how social change, change happens from Gandhi. He said that first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. And we're in those last two stages right now. We're being fought. Compassionate people are being fought by the industries who stand to profit from abusing animals, like the farming industry. Uh, but we're also having some wins. So just this year, just this past year, in 2019, Parliament passed the first serious new animal protection laws since the 1800s. We now have a national ban on keeping whales and dolphins in captivity in this country, and a ban on the import and export of shark fins. So that, to me, shows that there is massive progress being made, and predictably, when attitudes start to change and the profits are threatened of industries who rely on exploiting and abusing animals to make money, uh, they are going to fight back. So we're seeing that. So in a sense, it's a good thing because it shows that we're being effective. Mm -hmm. um, so you were speaking of the of the things that you mentioned, the improvements, um, the the Pause Act or Pause Law. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> well, there is the Pause Act too. Yeah. Uh, so is that? Um, do you think that that kind of? Well, first, do you want to talk about what that is? Sure. Well, the Pods Act is Ontario legislation. And, you know, I've been very critical of the provincial government for the egg gag bill that it presented, but I do want to give them a lot of credit for bringing in the Pods Act, which did pass late last year. So the Pods Act, what it does is it updates Ontario's animal cruelty laws. It increases some fines. It has some reasonably good improvement to substantive, substantive offenses under that law. But the most important thing it does is it takes animal cruelty inspections into the public sphere. So previously, we relied on the Ontario SPCA, a private charity that had to fundraise to afford to do the work. 
Uh, they were the ones who were in charge of doing animal cruelty inspections and enforcement and laying charges. So we were outsourcing a public function, which is law enforcement, to a private organization which had to fund that work largely by itself over history. And that, in 2019, 2020, we just felt that that was completely inappropriate. There's no other area of the law where we say, okay, we have passed these laws for the protection of the public good, but we're just going to leave it to a private charity or a private company or organization to enforce. So the fact that Ontario has made that move is a really good thing. I just wish they would back down from the egg cake bill. Yeah. It's funny because when uh, when I heard about that, you know, like that that the OSPC was like shutting down, I was like, oh no, it's such a bad thing because I okay, I'm gonna admit this now, I didn't realize that that was like a private charity, you know, and I don't think that I'm alone in that. Um, so it's very yeah, it is like you said, it's very odd that we're we're outsourcing things um, privately like that. Is that the case in other provinces or is it just kind of an Ontario? It's thing? very common. In fact, it's not just Canada wide. It, it's almost universal in Canada. Um, I would I would say with the caveat that Manitoba has a partially public enforcement system. They still rely on SPCAs or humane societies in some areas. And then mm. Newfoundland, it's mostly enforced by the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary. But everywhere else in the country, SPCAs have full or partial responsibility for enforcing laws and their charities. Uh, but it's not just Canada. This is actually the case in England as well, um, throughout the Commonwealth, Australia, New Zealand, all sorts of jurisdictions. This, this model just sort of sprung out of England, because when the first animal cruelty laws were enacted in the 1800s, that was a time when our system was much different. So there weren't police officers in the same way that we have them now. If I had a dispute with someone and I thought my neighbor stole my wheelbarrow, it was up to me to prosecute them by hiring my own lawyer and doing that. So when those first animal cruelty laws were enacted, there just weren't lawyers or people out there that had responsibility for enforcing them. Animals couldn't hire the lawyers themselves. So the Royal SPCA sprung up as the first SPCA in the Commonwealth, and it started doing that work of prosecution. So it was a good thing at the time, but it was born out of a system in the 1800s that we've now abandoned. Uh, laws are all now enforced by public bodies, um, except for animal laws. <laughs> so it's really good that we're seeing that shift. Yeah. Um, now, I know that when um, the, the bill first came out, the egg-gag bill, there was a lot of concern that it was going to be passed very quickly, like it was in Alberta, and so that hasn't happened. And is that, is that uh, a good thing? Do you see that as a good thing? I do. I think it's important that animal advocates have enough time to make our message heard, and mm -hmm. I am aware that there's going to be quite a lot of um, um, publicity and discussion publicly in the media and at the legislature about what this bill does. It's not something that the government is going to be able to hide from. So the more time that there is to expose the reality of what this will do and how it will conceal animal cruelty, I think that's good. Yeah. Um, so your organization, um, Animal Justice, is obviously doing a lot of really good things. So how can us regular folks support you? Well, we'd love for people to get involved by becoming citizen advocates. We're actually starting to uh, develop a program that will be launched this year to help people understand how they can be most effective in the work that we do, which is primarily legally focused. And what I've realized as a, an animal rights lawyer is that it's not enough for me to go to court or for me to go into a legislature and say, hey, you should change this law, you should pass stronger protections. The only way laws are going to pass and the only way judges are going to recognize that society has changed and they have to catch up is when there's a broad-based social movement of people who demonstrate their concern for animals. And that depends on each and every one of us being vocal and being active 
and speaking regularly with our legislators and communicating that we have concerns about the way our legal system treats animals and it's time to do better. Uh, the squeaky wheel really does get the grease, and right now it's the industries who are very powerful and make sure their voices are heard, and ours are often diminished or ignored. So to make progress, it really depends on people coming forward and being active in their communities and having relationships with their politicians. Okay. Okay, that's... Uh that's most of what I have to ask you, just one last thing. So I'm trying to get a new segment going in here, the wish list. So if you had one law that you could either create or change, what would it be? And it has to be realistic. It can't be like no one can eat meat anymore. <laughs> like it has to be something realistic. Well, that's, uh, that's a great question. I can think of a lot, but I'll try to choose the one that might have the biggest impact. Right now, there's no federal rules for animals in terms of how they're treated on farms. I would enact a new Farm Animal Protection Act that lays out regulations that say, here's how much space animals can have, here's the procedures you can do on them and that you can't, uh, make sure that things like anesthesia are required for mutilations and castrations, make sure that some of the worst practices are banned through this legislation, and just generally bring our treatment of animals on farms in line with societal values. Even if the world is not ready to give up eating meat quite yet, nobody wants to see animals abused on their way to their plate. So I think this is totally reasonable. It's something that Canadians already think that we have in place if you ask them. And when they find out that we don't, they're shocked. So that's what I bring in. Okay. Uh, so thank you so much for being on our show. Always great to be here. You've been listening to Veg Out, the Toronto Vegetarian Podcast and radio show heard on CJRU 1280 AM, The Scope. Remember that you can listen to past episodes on our app, The Veg Guide, and at veg.ca slash vegout. Find out everything you need to know about what we do at veg.ca. Until next time, Veg, veg out. out. Yeah. You've been listening to Veg Out, the Toronto Vegetarian Podcast and radio show heard on CJRU 1280 AM, The Scope. Remember that you can listen to past episodes on our app, The Veg Guide, and at veg.ca slash vegout. Find out everything you need to know about what we do at veg.ca. And by the way, we are having two drop-in events at the Resource Centre, one on Wednesday, January 18th, and another one on uh, Saturday, January 22nd with Debbie Fong, who is a registered dietitian. So come on by and get your questions answered. Until next time, veg, veg out. out. Good timing.